Welcome to a new exclusive audio feature of The Legacy of John Williams. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, editor of The Legacy of John Williams. Today I'm honored to present a new installment of The Legacy Conversations, a series of in-depth talks about the legacy of John Williams with prominent figures of both film and music scenes. Our guest today is composer and conductor David Newman, one of the most distinguished film composers working in Hollywood today. David began his music career playing violin in the studio orchestras in Los Angeles from the late 1970s to the early 1980s. He performed under John Williams' baton in several of his scores, including E.T. the Extraterrestrial. He's about to start working with Steven Spielberg on the new adaptation of Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story, coming next year. David is also a very fine conductor of film and classical music and conducted many concerts featuring John Williams' music, including many premieres of live-to-picture presentations. Newman is part of one of Hollywood's richest musical legacies. He is one of the sons of Alfred Newman, the legendary composer and conductor, winner of nine Academy Awards, who was the head of music department of 20th Century Fox from 1940 to 1959. Alfred Newman is considered one of the founding fathers of Hollywood's film music and was also one of the very first to take notice of the talent of a very young John Williams at the beginning of his career. David, thank you very much for being here. I'm very happy to sit down and talk with you about the musical legacy of John Williams, as you certainly developed a very special and unique insight into his music. At the beginning of your musical career, you performed on some of John Williams' film scores as a violinist. Yes. And then later you started conducting his music in many concerts in the United States. But I'd love also to talk about the connection of John Williams to the musical legacy of the Newman family. Um... Wow, that's a big subject. You know, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. Ho Hollywood just a 
a part of Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a city of suburbs. There, there is a downtown, but there's really no downtown. Uh, most of the people that worked throughout the 30s, 40s, 50s, and, and on lived in the what, what's called the west side of Los Angeles and these neighborhoods. And it's sort of where I grew up. Uh, my father was Alfred Newman. Yes. And John Williams started as a pianist in Fox, uh, playing, I think, on Carousel was the first one, the musical which I think was 1954, 55, something like that. And my dad was always on the look out for talent because there was so much work to be done and you wanted, obviously, uh, when you were in charge, you want good people to do it. So um, I think to a certain degree, he, he took what we would say a shine to John Williams and saw the potential and helped him, I think. And um, even though I'm one of five kids we grew up in a the civic palace age which as i said is from the west side of los angeles we knew there was movie music going on we knew what our father did but we had a pretty bucolic los angeles beautiful weather mediterranean wonderful public school american kind of upbringing where we went through a large public school system but that had an immense amount of the arts of of, of music and theater and dance and some very, very sophisticated uh, music, frankly, music classes, some that were almost better than it was um, in college. So I didn't really, I mean, I knew John, and of course I, you know, I loved all the movies. I went to the movies, but I wasn't really thinking all that much about film music per se until I got through college and I had this kind of renaissance relationship with my father who had died when I was 15. So I, I was now 1920. I was going to the University of Southern California, which is near downtown Los Angeles. But I lived at home in the Palisades. And uh, I just started listening to a lot of my father's music recording, especially the 60s movies like um, How the West Was Won, The Greatest Story Ever Told, Nevada Smith, Airports, etc. Mm -hmm. And Camelot's as well, which he did in the 50s, I mean, in the 60s. And I started to garner a more of appreciation for film music. I, I, I cut, quite frankly, was kind of a snob of classical music snob. I didn't think all that much of mu movie music compared to all the classical music that I was doing because I was, uh, I was heading to be a professional violinist. So when I got out of college, I started working like a lot of us did in the studios and in Hollywood in Los Angeles because there was so much work. Uh, there must have been enough work for five, six, seven hundred people to make a really good living just doing freelance m movies and television in Los Angeles. Yes, and that's when I started playing in in the orchestras of, for John Williams, and so I sort of saw firsthand, little by little, because you know it, it's it's literally hours and hours of work and days and days over over the maybe ten years I was playing violin. I I played on many. John Williams movies. And uh, so a lot of what I learned was was just kind of sitting around, keeping my ears and my eyes open and, and seeing what he was doing kind of in detail a bit. You could hear more, play the music over and over again, and you hear things being rehearsed. Um, that's the one thing about playing in an orchestra is that's how you learn, is yes. by learn how things are organized. And I mean, as much as I could learn at that time, because I wasn't, I really wasn't on a composing um, track at the, t at the time, but um, it was a big deal playing on a John Williams film. It's sort mm -hmm. of hard to describe because there was such a 
variety of ability and of the composers that were working at the time. But obviously, John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith were uh, were at the absolute top, coming from completely different places, but landing in film music. Yes. And so it was it was a very interesting, very healthy time for film music. There was a lot of experimentation going on. There was a lot of really skilled, interesting composers, and then there was a lot of really uninteresting, unskilled composers, as there isn't anything that we do in life. There's a there's a variety of abil- of abilities, but they were so obviously at the top that whenever you did something, it just uh, for either one of those, you just it just was a completely different kind of feeling and and vibe. Yes. Are we talking about the late seventies, early eighties, right? Seventy seven was the first thing I ever did. I think it was right after he had done Close Encounters. So I worked on uh, I worked on E.T. I did all those sessions. I did the 1941, all those sessions. Mm. I'd have to go to IMDb, but I, I did a lot of other movies. Pretty much everything he did in Los Angeles up to about 1982, I was yes. I would I would have played on. Yes, in those years, I think he was very active in the uh, in London. He was recording a lot with the London. Yeah, so obviously, we didn't we didn't do that? Of but, course, yes. But he still did a lot in in, in LA. Still, it wasn't so ubiquitous as it is now to go to London. Um, yes, it, it was still a big deal to try to go there, and you know, yeah. Obviously, with the Star Wars thing, then it, it had to be it had to be the LSO. It was just part of the whole. The whole uh, package of Star Wars. Yeah, I think that it's very interesting because uh, basically you you were coming from the band as much as John Williams did. I mean, yeah. he, he started in the late fifties uh, as a pianist, and so he came from the band. And he spoke yeah. many times about the influence of your father, Alfred Newman, and yeah. the importance of working near such a figure in the early days of his career. I became fascinated and have a love affair had love affair with orchestra itself mm-hmm. as an instrument to deliver music when I was very, very young, in large part because of the fact that I would go to the movies and hear an orchestra, which I wouldn't have heard in a concert until later. So I think that's the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I would see names on the screen. It would say, Music by Alfred Newman. later or so, I was studying music and playing here, and I was employed by Alfred Newman in his studio to play in his orchestra. Can you imagine?
Alfred Newman was one of the very first to recognize his talent. So how much do you think John took from your father in terms of approach to the discipline of film music? Well, I, you know, I, I again, I'm, I'm 65 now, 65 mm. years. And the more I learn about Alfred Newman and the culture at Fox, the more impressive it is to me. The, the more I know, the more I realize how unbearably difficult it must have been to create a department like there was in Fox. Uh, not just, I mean, the whole thing, the, the whole way it was run, uh, all the arrangers, all the composers, all the musicians, all the librarians, all the music copyists, everyone on down was just absolutely first rate. And my father was a difficult taskmaster in a way, but he wasn't, he, he was very good at delegating and quite frankly, he had a great skill at administrating. So his job in the 50, 40s and 50s at Fox was threefold, right? He, yes. he, he wrote music, he conducted everyone's music basically, and he was an administrator because he, he, he ran the department basically only, the only person he had to report to was Daryl Zanuck who loved him, it begged him to come he basically could do whatever he wanted, spend as much money as he as he wanted. Of course, he had to, you know, there was it, it wasn't unlimited, but he certainly could do pretty much whatever he wanted. And he built this incredible department. The orchestra, this is what so floored me when I was in my 20s and I actually started listening. And it wasn't the Fox Orchestra I started listening to. It was it was, you know, the legacy of it, all the Fox Orchestra broke up in 1959. Uh, the greatest story ever told, um, which is an absolutely stunning score, was I think 61, 62, maybe a little bit later. I think Counterfeit Trader was at that. You, you cannot imagine what a looming figure Alfred Newman was at the time, mm -hmm. and, and deservedly so. Sometimes these things are not deserved. I think what Alfred Newman and Fox created, anyone that's a serious trained musician can see how impossibly difficult it was just simply to get an orchestra to play like that. Mm. It is impossible, literally almost impossible to get an orchestra to play the way the Fox Orchestra played. I realize now it's anachronistic, but I, I just can't imagine being there mm. like John as a young person and watching that happen. It's hard to describe. It's like um, in music, music exists, whether it's melodic or not melodic, it exists in phrases. They're like sentences. Sometimes when you, in, in, in music, 
mm. formal analysis, you talk about a, a theme and then a period. Yeah. It's like a sentence that ends in a period. It all exists in phrases. And phrases are always going somewhere. They're moving or move, moving toward or moving away or getting softer, getting louder. or And then all the, the soulfulness in it, the, the thing that makes music music, it's always in motion. But it is so hard to get an orchestra to consistently do that. That takes years <laughs> to get to play like that and then to codify it. You know, I, I term it this hyper rubato style that Fox Orchestra kind of promulgated, uh, especially in the kind of um, the noir dramas they did or the or the the Weathering Heights, even though that's not Fox, but uh, the All About Eve, the, um, you know, Diary of Anne Frank, that yeah. sort of hyper rubato playing. I think John lived in, I mean, John grew up in that. And my dad, he was a tough taskmaster, but he was a, he would just leave you alone if you knew what you were doing. Yeah. And it was very clear what you were required to do. And if you did it, you just did it. No one was micromanaging you, you know? And all the difficult people that worked there, the Bernard Herman, David Raxon, who no one wanted to work with anymore because they're frankly such grumpy, unpleasant yeah. people at the time, he didn't care. He could handle any of them because mm -hmm. as long as they did their job and, and they just they acquiesced to him. You know, he, he, he I think he let Bernard Herrmann conduct some of his stuff here and there. But no one was going to deny if Alfred Newman conducted your music that it was going to be as well played as it possibly could. Yeah, absolutely. And so John, to me, th that is a perfect environment for somebody like John to grow up in. Yeah, his music doesn't end up sounding like that golden age music but there is a certain legacy of of excellence there is a certain kind of excellence i think john williams took in terms of making things sound good right away yeah i like to think of it like if you think of stravinsky's orchestration and again if you sit in an orchestra and rehearse right of spring or petrushka or as a young adult or a, you know a, a young person in, in an orchestra and you've played the firebird maybe 10 times in your life, you know, with 10 different orchestras, yeah. you start to see what he, you know, like Stravinsky just sounds really good right away. Yeah. Then you play Brahms or I don't know what a, what's a better, oh, let's say this is a better example. Let's say you play La Mer, WC. Yeah. It's sort of the same era, a different thing. It, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't sound good right away. It takes a lot of work to make it sound good. John Williams' music to me always sounded good. It immediately sounds good. It's, mm. it's, I think, part of his aesthetic. He wants everything to sound, to just ping and sparkle and sound good right away. Say the difference with Goldsmith is more like the Debussy thing. It, it, mm. It's a lot more work to make it sound good immediately. Yeah, I think that Jerry probably would be also much more difficult to sound good 
in a live setting because he experimented a lot also with electronics or with yes, uh, specific instruments. It, it actually doesn't. You, you know what's impossible to make sound good is Alfred Newman, just be, because no one can play that style. I've done lots of Jerry Goldsmith. We did three years of a concert a year with this young pre-professional orchestra in Los Angeles, the American mm -hmm. Symphony. And yes, there's a lot of electronics that you have to deal with, but it sounds spectacular live. It's mm -hmm. just a lot of work. And then I've done tons of John Williams. It immediately sounds great. Like most of Stravinsky, certain kinds of Stravinsky, I, I think are a good, a good barometer, something like Petrushka. Just, it just sounds, you know, as long as everyone can play the notes, it just sounds marvelous. It's not this huge problem balancing it where balancing Debussy is, is just really difficult and it takes a lot of work. And once you balance it, it sounds of course, fabulous. But it doesn't, it's not just written that way. Like yeah. Brahms isn't written that way. Brahms doesn't sound, it, it takes, it, you, you know he's not thinking so much of orchestration as he is of the music. Yes. John is always thinking of orchestration. I think Goldsmith too, but not in the same way. I think to John, it's really important what it sounds, I don't know what you call the texture, I guess, of yes. it. There are all these music words that people use that are really hard to define, especially to non-musicians because it's so hard to talk about about music yeah for want of a better word certain textures just sound better Th these instruments sound better in combination with these instruments even though you don't intrinsically have to use that sort of doubling or blend it just doesn't naturally sound as good mm. i'll say like there's a really good example of the nocturne in midsummer night's dream of mendelssohn there's horns with bassoon in the middle of the horns which just sounds great a bassoon sounds like when you don't have enough horns if you only have three horns and you want four horns or you only have two horns and you want three horns mm -hmm. you just stick a bassoon in the middle and it just sounds great so there are all these little things that you learn along the way mm -hmm. uh, and john's background in uh jazz and in you know which of course has to sound good immediately there's no there's no middle ground with that kind of you know music generally so um and, and, and look i've never spoken to him about this i've never heard him speak about this this is totally my yeah. take and it might be completely off base but this is what i sort of took away watching him when I was basically thinking about being uh, a violinist and a conductor. And then what I took with me when I struggled to start learning how to compose myself and then started composing. That thing between sort of him and Goldsmith was just fascinating and very instructive for me. Yeah, I think that probably as a composer, everyone would look at the music of John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith and other greats like your father, Alfred, probably would like to see uh, how they solved some problems, I think, yeah. in the perspective of the musician. Yeah. And I think in this sense, uh, people like John Williams and also Jerry Goldsmith, but also going even a little bit earlier, like Andre Previn, everyone moved their first footsteps in a very demanding, but also very creative environment where high musicianship was revered and respected. So the 20th Century Fox department was the best place to work, yeah. mostly because of the things you were saying before, yeah. the system that Alfred Newman established there. So there was a lot of pressure, but there was also a lot of work to do. And so yeah. these people had the chance to test their own skills yeah. very soon. So yeah. how much that communal experience between all these people that probably talk to each other? You, you know what they would do? 
from what I understand, at five or six o'clock, first of all, everyone was on the lot at Fox. Uh, the back lot of Fox is now a city, well, a, I don't know if it's a city or not, but it's, it's Century City in Los Angeles. But that used to be the back lot of Fox. Um, and all these composers and arrangers, they had these what they call bungalows. Basically, they were just condominiums that were on the lot at Fox. So when you say it was a community, it's, it, you could almost live there. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they, they would go home to their families and children, obviously. But if they had to, they could live there. And generally, every day at about five or six, you know, they were all big drinkers, smokers, pill poppers. You know, <laughs> they'd stop at around five or six o'clock for an hour and get together in Alfred Newman's bungalow and drink and, and, <laughs> and talk for an hour. And then everyone would go back to either working or would go home or whatever it was. So when you say a community, I think that was really, really important in this art form growing and people letting each other know how they did solve certain problems. Um, I don't think this went on from, uh, from you know, I don't think people at Warner Brothers would talk to people at Fox. I think it would be kind of in-house mainly, but I think it was an incredibly positive experience, especially if you were a young composer. And you could go and listen to other people's scores. Um, uh, I mean, I just can't imagine what, what, what a wonderful environment that must have, you know. And like you said, nerve-wracking and, and all that. Still, to, 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 to grow up in that environment and to hear an orchestra play like that and, and everything else, down, down to the smallest detail, um, is important to Alfred Newman. Everything. The music librarian department, the, the library department, um, what's now called JKMS in Los Angeles, they are still the premier copying outfit, perhaps in the world. They can, they can do things that almost nobody else can do. That's the legacy of Fox. They can, co- they can copy a 500 bar score in, in like two or three hours and have it on the stand in the afternoon, something that you would turn in that morning. <laughs> that's a lot of work yes yeah and not only that they'll have proofed it and they they have this system that was all set up at fox and i only say that just to tell you the detail that was, was the environment of that place that everybody was proud of their department and being excellent in their department that is literally almost non-existent now a days except mm-hmm. for some of the legacies of of that of that time i don't say that that it's, that's bad but that's where John came from. That's his, to me, his mindset is that. Yes. Just be excellent and do the best you can and surround yourself with the best people that you can and, you know, go from there. At least as my dad would say, um, we, we didn't talk a lot, but, you know, music never gets boring, especially when you're striving for, for excellence. Yes, absolutely. I think that makes sense also from, from the playing of the orchestra to the quality of the arrangers and the orchestrators and even the composers, of course, because there was such a huge uh, array of talent. Uh, I mean, even the orchestrators, I mean, Edward Powell and Conrad oh Salinger, you know, all those and, incredible and, musicians. And you know that Alfred Newman never wrote any music till he got to Hollywood. He had to learn. Eddie Powell helped him learn how to write music. And that's another really interesting thing. That's a similarity with me. I, I know I didn't start writing any music till I was 29. I think my dad was 30 when he arrived. He arrived in 1930 in Hollywood. Him and Max Steiner arrived, I think, within six weeks of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But Max Steiner knew how to run. Max Steiner was a composer. My father was a conductor and arranger in Broadway, and he he had been a prodigy pianist. You know, absolutely dirt poor. Um, so he just he had to work as early as he could to support his giant. You know, he was one of ten kids. Wow. And I think it it's just so interesting how if you follow him now, which I'm much more interested in it now than I was when I was a kid, is to follow the trajectory of his career. Mm-hmm. And for instance, like the, the last movie he did was Airport. Yeah. And Airport is a really different movie for him stylistically. I mean, you could see he was all his life open to to this. I know they're supposed to talk about John Williams. No, but it's, I think it's okay. Alfred it's okay. It's a big part of John Williams' life. Yes. I think Alfred Newman had a young mindset when it comes to this. And I don't think he ever felt totally comfortable composing, really, is that it was it was always something that he came to late, where conducting he had done really early on and it had a tremendous amount of experience doing. And I don't know, the administration just seemed to come naturally to him. He he liked being in charge. You know, it's an, it's an odd thing to be that talented artistically and be a, that good of an administrator at the same time. That's a very, very, very rare quality. I don't, I don't, I can't think of any analog to that in, 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 in anything, say maybe, I don't know, Fred Fangler or Tuscanini or, 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 I'm sure there are, and maybe probably Mahler when he was at the Vienna Opera or the Met, you know, but they they were also, this film thing, this combination, I think just brought out the best in him. community back then in the late 20s early 30s yes it was a very special place because there was a lot of people coming from europe uh, a lot of musicians a lot of talent and then later there will come stravinsky and schoenberg and so there was a a very you know i think a very nurturing uh, community it was very very interesting to be there at that that moment for any musician but remember also how looked down upon film music was at the time. Yes. I mean, if you read what Stravinsky wrote about film music or uh, Britain, um, even Schoenberg, though Schoenberg, I think, was a little more open-minded. Yeah. But, and, and I think my dad and Steiner, they all, yeah, even Korngold, I, I think they, they kind of lived with a chip on their shoulder. You know, they were getting these massive amounts of money. You know, they all tried to write film music, Stravinsky and Britain, and, but they didn't understand the art form, you know? I mean, just imagine that you lived through the late 20s and into the early 30s in this phenomenon called talking movies starts. What the hell are talking movies? It's like, it's, it's so disruptive to art. 
Yeah. You know, is it going to be like opera? Is it going to be, it's, it's a commercial artistic art form. What the hell is that? It, it, and what kind of music do we write for? What should we do? How do we do this? You know, and, and they little by little figured it out through the 30s where they had figured it out by 1939 for sure. And with yes. Cornwall being there and all that. But, um, and, and I think when John started at, at Fox, there was still this legacy of this, that this was this really new art form that you could kind of do anything. And it's a commercial art form. Yes. Maybe opera you could look at as a commercial art form, especially in Italy in the 19th century. Yeah, but absolutely. The highest part of opera, really the commercial part of it is subservient to the artistic part of it. Absolutely. In film, it's, it's, they are co-equal branches. I mean, you can't make, a movie costs so much money to make, you can't make it unless you make money. Otherwise you can't make the movie and you can't write any music for something that's not there. Yes. So it's an integral part of it. So how do you deal with that? How, how do you make music that's artful, but can exist in a commercial art form? This is what they all struggle with and try to come up with answers to, you know? And John Williams, God bless him. I mean, I, no one figured it out better than he did. <laughs> how, how to do that, how to be simple on the surface and tuneful and yet subversive underneath. I really came to this by conducting his scores yeah. live, where I really had to study them and go over and over in detail. Yeah. I'll give you one example that I think is so much a part of his aesthetic, um, or at least one part. Yeah. In the movie E.T., there is a motive for the adults, which you don't, you don't, you don't really meet any adults except yeah. their mother, um, who's just a ditz, you know, really. Um, like a lot of Spielberg films, the, the, the women characters are kind of ditzy. Yeah. But there is this motive that for me, I call the menace motive, the thing that goes, you know, dun, da, 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 yeah. da, da, You hear it at the beginning of the movie and you hear it here and there throughout the movie whenever the adults kind of come into frame and you don't really see the adults you don't really know are they benevolent or are they menace you know what you, you don't really know what they are so you, it's it's really kind of from the child's point of view yes so in the middle of the movie there's the scene where there's the lullaby where uh the mother's reading to gertie peter pan and he has this amazing harp solo for it. Yes. Which is goes throughout the, the film, which is, you know, a whole other subject than yes. <laughs> anything like it. So they're going along and the E.T. is in the closet with Elliot and they're looking at, and the camera focuses on E.T. at his wonder at this mother and child thing, you know? Yeah. And then Elliot puts his arm around E.T. and the camera starts to move away and it moves into, and you see there's a van and they're recording it and they're being spied on by, are they benevolent or are they what? And as that beautiful melody, that dee-dum, that beautiful thing and then out of the this little flute one flute as you see the the guy goes 
which is the menace motive. Yeah. But it's completely transformed. And it's such a simple thing, the way these things are transformed by tempo, orchestration, style. And it's so simple, you'd never even notice. To me, that is indicative of the, of the art form of what, you know, what film music is. Another example would be when Darth Vader in um, A Return of the Jedi, when he takes off his helmet. Yes. And you hear the Darth Vader theme in this kind of magical, whimsical, because you just see that Darth Vader is this tired old man. He's yes. just nothing. It's like the evil in, in the Inferno, Dante, you know, the devil in the 24th ring is just ensconced in, in, you know, it's not fire and brimstone. It's just ensconced in ice. It's just banal nothing. Yes. And then uses that motive in a way that transforms the scene. And it's so simple. It's not this complicated, transformative thing. It's a combination of something that's referential to the film, simple and yet highly artistic. That cue is one of the most beautiful examples of John Williams' Wagnerian approach. Yes. Not too much in the sense of the style, because the music doesn't sound anything like Wagner, but more about in the way he is able to morph and transform uh, the theme, Darth Vader's theme. Because if we look at how that theme is presented in the previous film as a kind of martial, vigorous, menacing kind of thing, Yeah, uh, it's impressive to see where he's able to bring that idea, that musical idea, and transform it into a sort of elegy for, for the death of the character. that sense it's very it's reaching back to a kind of uh, mythology i think in music yeah anyway i don't think he's intellectualizing too much his approach uh i think he reacts more instinctively uh to what he's seeing he does talk about this though like in raiders which i've also done so i know it really well about just giving you snippets of the theme also in et where you don't really hear the flying theme in E.T. till the last reel of the of the film, like uh, the 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 indie theme, you don't really hear really. In t I, I, you hear a little bit of the beginning when the plane, yes. the, the water planes taking off, but you really hear it when he's on the submarine. Yeah, and you really almost hear it till the end title, you know. And he does talk about that that that's something that he tries to parse out the theme slowly, but yeah. um. I used to think like what you just said, and, and I'm starting to think that he thinks about it more than I think he thinks about it. Okay. Never heard him talk all that much except for that about it, mm. but it's 
absolutely what you said is what he's doing. And, and certainly Star Wars, they named it a space opera. I mean, that, that's the moniker they gave it. So yeah. obviously he is thinking in terms of motives, or light motives or whatever you want to call the Wagner, especially particularly in the ring. Um, yeah. The thing that's so interesting to me is the, the intersection of commerce and art. And here's the other thing. When I get these films now, when I'm doing a live film, you, mm. you get a QuickTime file. Yeah. And you have separate the dialogue, separate the effects, and separate the music. So when I'm going to work on it, you know, um, I know the music. I don't, I, I, I can see it in my head. So I turn off the music and I practice and listen in my head to the music. Yeah. But you can turn on the dialogue and the, um, the effects or turn off the effects and just have the dialogue and, and, mm. and, and watch it. So say I might be practicing the end of the first Star Wars movie and mm. it, all it is is these, you know, huge effects. So you turn off the effects and you just hear the dialogue and sort of see the miniatures of, you know, it's incredibly instructive or like the beginning of E.T. This is a really good example, I think. Mm. When you take off the music at the beginning of E.T., you hear these kind of in the forest, an owl hooting, a wolf howling, little yeah, little noises, and it seems kind of um, scary a little bit, creepy. Yeah, yeah. You don't know what's going on. Is it good? Is it bad? You know, what is it? It seems like a, a Disney cartoon from the forties. Kind of weird. Yeah, you put music on. It's completely, utterly different. You now know they look like they're benevolent botanists, you know, trying to hide and being reverential about, you know, and then there's that beautiful high shot of the woods. Yeah. And, you know, the music does says, it says religioso, but it just completely changes the thing, whatever that thing is, whatever the movie is, whatever you call it, you know, the thing that everybody collaborates to, to have happen, that then becomes this thing that everyone that's working on it, particularly when you're writing music, has to collaborate with which is a movie, not 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 necessarily a person. Yes. We have to give the movie what it what it needs. how difficult that is to do and that journalists and scholars don't have the material enough to, to go from this point of view of no music to music and see what difference music yeah. makes and see how complicated or simple do you need to be to do this yeah because you can ruin it by being too complicated you you make whatever problems there might be in the scene that make it need music worse instead of better Absolutely. And, and music also, again, has to be commercial and artful. It has to be a unifying force in the movie because it's the only thing really 
that's made in a movie that exists in a kind of serial way when you actually create it. So it's all sort of done in these little chunks, you know? Yes. Uh, not that music isn't done in chunks, because it is, but it's done in larger chunks, you know, two, yes. three, four, five, six minute chunks. Yeah. And, and then it has to, over the time, it has to have some reference to something, to what it did or reference to some um, extra musical diegetic reference or, yes. you know, whatever. And John Williams is just a frigging master at this. And I, I tend to think now that I'm older and that I've studied these more that he thinks about this, as I said, more than I thought that he th thought about it. And yes, I'm sure much of it is instinctive as much of it, you know, is, but it's, it's a really interesting, um, phenomenon that ability to do that and as you say problems come up and how do you solve the problem yeah i think that he probably now has a such a a deep knowledge of uh, the history of music and the history of film music he's probably very able to to crack uh, a solution very quickly in some ways but also he's very much focused at on the things that he's doing at the very moment um, yep. John Williams is uh, referred a lot of times as the, the keeper of the tradition of the classic Hollywood film music style. So what are the main things for you that he took from that approach? Not just the style, I mean, not just the big symphonic style and how much he was able to make it his own over the years. Well, to me, John Williams, particularly in this Star Wars and Raiders and, and all that style, to me, that harkens back almost to Korngold, uh, this sort of swashbuckler kind of uh, thing. But, you know, John wrote a lot of other kinds of scores. Like, uh, one of my favorite scores of his is um, Accidental Tourist. Yeah, which, I love it. Which is a very European yes. score in that it has a theme that he plays over and over. And yet, the last cue in the movie is an utter different take development take on this simple theme that that yeah. really is only about five bars long yeah and yeah. instead of it and it's all developed and it's much more complicated because the character has now figured out something that's very hard to figure out yes the whole story and then the other the other one that i really liked though i i wasn't i didn't like the movie as much as the original but you know the movie sabrina yes Yes. Okay, and the, the remake that he did, I think, has a beautiful main theme. Yeah, for but piano, yes. What's really interesting about Sabrina, um, which is this sort of witty, urbane comedy, it's a little darker. I think Sidney Pollack was the director of the new one, the one that John did. But anyway, it's about an older man and a younger woman. That's, that's the essence of the story. A younger woman, at the end of the movie, gets together with an older man. Yes. You know? Yeah. It's not really mentioned. That really isn't taken into account in the movie, uh, in either movie, even the, the Audrey Hepburn, you know, Humphrey Bogart movie or in this new movie. But John, in the theme, there's a certain melancholy in it. And not to say that there's not some melancholy in the movie, because there is, but it's implied that Yes, they're they can be happy, and yes, it's very sophisticated and urbane. But there's something sad about it because the younger woman is going to lose the older husband. All things being um, equal, um, yeah. so it's part of the theme, the 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 kind of minor major yes thing. Even though 
it's not really uh, ostentatious at all. It's just in there. It's very classy and it also evokes in some ways a, a kind of uh, European, uh, because there's this triple time going on, kind of a waltz of something out of, uh, you know, 1920s Vienna in kind of, kind of way, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. It's interesting, you know. So I think that John really took certain lessons from that era but he, he was living in a different time. I think in the 60s, he, he wasn't writing swashbuckling, the, the scores that we know him for. That really that really sort of started with Jaws, I think. Yes, absolutely. Might have been a little bit earlier, but you know, obviously with Star Wars, it was um, you know, on steroids. His music seems to be the, the, the perfect synthesis of the European symphonic tradition and also the great American school. I mean, you can hear something from Copeland or even Leonard Bernstein. Some... You, you can hear a lot of English. You can hear a lot of Delius. You hear a lot of um, uh, uh, the, a lot of John's brass writing. I, I find very English. You hear a lot of Britain in it. Um, he He's, again, there's a certain aspect to film music where you just grab what you need because it can't make an audience feel uncomfortable. Mm. Otherwise, you, you cannot distract an audience from the story. It just literally does not work in a movie. Absolutely. He was also a jazzman, so he absorbed right. that vernacular as well. And he always used it in his film music. All these elements brought together. So what makes John's music so distinctive while being a direct continuation of so many different traditions? Um, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that exactly. I, I think... John Williams' music now is so ubiquitous, it's hard to think of it as just his. There's so much, It's it's been so influential. I don't think that style is really going on so much now, the last 10 years, you know, is using polyphony to a certain degree. Um, I think, say, like the Hans Zimmer school does not really like polyphony. I feel like, if you said that John Williams was like Mahler, um, Hans yes. Zimmer would be like, would be like Bruckner. It's just kind of a homophonic. Um, and John, I think, is still, you know, is still writing the way he wants to, to write. So, um, but uh, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to answer that, to be quite frank. I hear his influences, but now it's so much him. It's it's almost it's almost hard to not think of him as the influence because yeah. it's so uh, ubiquitous. And I think now, the, especially in the last ten years, with all this, I mean, literally every orchestra in the world now has played some John Williams yeah. music. Yeah, I mean that's probably thousands of orchestras. It's just so it's so much a part, as you said, of the of the zeitgeist, and 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 literally billions of people have heard his music that have seen the movies. Yeah. So I, I don't know how it's going to all that what his real long lasting legacy will be. It's just for me, you know, I, I maybe you know I'm not being objective, but it it is just the direct descendant of the legacy of the 20th Century Fox music aesthetic and in environments and it just you know film music ebbs and flows it goes in good cycles it goes in bad cycles i mean it's just the nature of it it's not all that old yet it's not even a hundred years old yet yeah so in the scheme of things and it, there really have not been enough materials for people to really parse out what's going on with it because you really you really need all this as i said you need to be able to look at a movie without any music and then see what the music is and it it's it's so profoundly changes your view of it and 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 i uh, frankly i don't really think movies are all that well understood yet mm. because they are so, they were so disruptive and it's hard for us to put ourselves in that in the in the shoes of of you know not having video games and and you know ios devices and and you know this immediate ability to look at any kind of entertainment we want yeah um Absolutely. I, I think to me now, John Williams is really an institution. And yes, he, as I said, there you you can look to influences, but you, you know you can see Mahler's influences and Wagner's influences. Even the, even the most um, disruptive composers, you know, you can hear influences from other from other places. It's just the nature of Western art. Yeah, it, yeah. It's built on a foundation, and I think the the sort of originality thing that is so admired the 20th century's kind of obsession with originality yeah um, and i don't mean that as a pejorative i just um i think that that is a relatively new concept and i don't know even that it's as important as it was 15 years ago um you know i think i think the yeah. arts community is now a little more open to people using other influences in, in, in art music and film music use you know there's a lot of influence in contemporary classical music that comes from film music that was influenced by this that was influenced yeah. by the yeah i think that now we are now living in an era where the the fields are mixing with each other a lot more than than in the past absolutely you can hear uh, concert hall music that sounds like film music and it's fine now john's music also made a lot of people curious to discover the classical symphonic repertoire and bringing uh -huh. them closer to, to Stravinsky, Prokofiev, Shostakovich, and so on. So you recently conducted a concert in Prague featuring the, the John Williams Suite from Jen Eyre, together with uh, the Gershwin Piano Concerto and Schoenberg's Verklagte Nacht, and uh, mm -hmm. pieces from Stravinsky as well. One of my really good friends, um, Andrew Van Oyen, is a wonderful uh, concert pianist. I know the conductor of the orchestra, and um, we wanted to do a program where they where we programmed um, the Gershwin Concerto, which just had, uh, by the way, a, a new edition that was done mm -hmm. at the University of Michigan, which is nice because it's a it's kind of a mess right now. But Gershwin, you know, Gershwin lived across the street from Schoenberg, 
Uh, I'm not when he wrote that piece. He wrote that piece in the 20s. But he was a Los Angeles yeah. guy, as Schoenberg was. Schoenberg rearranged Verkleidenacht while he was in Los Angeles, as you described as an expat, expatriate. The Dances Concertant that I did of Stravinsky was the first piece Stravinsky wrote when he moved to Los Angeles. And he, he wrote a really interesting um, kind of citation about it as to how freeing, in a way, it was being in Los Angeles after... Um, I think it was 1941 he came here. Uh, so that had a Los Angeles connection. And then the John Williams, obviously. So we just did stuff that had the Los Angeles uh, connections. There's another piece, Jane Eyre, just sounds great immediately. You hardly have to balance anything. It just sounds gorgeous. The Stravinsky also sounds good once you can play it. It's it's very difficult to play. Claire Nacht, very difficult to balance. Mm. Very does not sound good right away. And, um, and Gershwin... We had to just, they're not so familiar with the style. Gershwin is, you know, basically a, a, an abstracted uh, symphonic piece based on the Charleston, very popular dance in the 20s. They're all masterpieces, I think, and it was it was fun to do. But it, that was sort of like a one-off for me. Mainly, I just do the live film concerts and, um, you know, and then whatever composing I'm doing, uh, that, that kind of stuff. But do you think that John's music could be or should be presented in concert, also alongside selection from those great repertoire and not necessarily uh, into film nights and so on. Okay, well, I'm, I'm of two minds about this. When John first started doing this in the 80s, when he was the, became music director of the um, Boston Pops, you know all about that, right? The Boston yes. Pops? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a whole nother subject. It would be really good to do some kind of conversation with somebody about that because he single-handedly jammed through this thing what we're doing now with live movies would be, have been unthinkable without john williams being at the boston pops you cannot imagine how difficult that was for him yeah do that and and he didn't have to do it you know i mean he was coming off star wars yeah he could write day and night all the time he did it i'm sure he wanted to conduct it's fun to conduct but he also did it as a mission in my view he's never said this to me but i believe he did it as a mission to get film music played so that people instead of criticizing something they knew absolutely nothing about and never listened to and never studied yeah could have a chance to freaking listen to it and then make a judgment instead of just judging it out of hand because of your un your misunderstanding of the aesthetic of what it of what it is so i don't know i i, I think that's another um really interesting aspect of his it is yeah career. but at that point he was making lots of arrangements of, of, of his music for concert and i never really bonded to them because i thought it, it takes them out of context what i like about the live movies is you can hear the music in its original context so those examples i gave you of say the et example you're not going to hear that in a suite you're, you're never going to know what that is unless you watch the movie and yeah. with the live film you can sort of hear the music maybe a little bit more maybe the conductor brings out something that they think is particularly artistic yeah. at a certain point and it's it's organic and live and, and and all that so i that's what i prefer it in a way to these arrangements though i think the jane air arrangement works perfectly well not that they they all work perfectly well in concert but in this context the um the jane Eyre sounds like a um a, a kind of english bucolic pastoral piece it doesn't yes it doesn't necessarily need the film yeah to make its point because 
so many people have read the novel and, exactly. and know the story and, and, and all that. I wouldn't have programmed, you know, E.T. Or, or Star Wars or it would have been something a little more esoteric of his um, that I would have done. But this this seemed like a good a good fit for that kind of program. So that's why I did that. And in any event, I that that was a very specific kind of uh, endeavor, the, the, the program. I'll throw you a, a little bit of a provocation. Do you think that it would make sense to perform maybe one day, let's say, the truck chase from Raiders of the Lost Ark, just as it is as a piece of music without any visuals? Um, that's what we were doing with Goldsmith, with American Youth Symphony. And then we did a few years of Danny Elfman. That's what we did. We would, I would never play an arrangement of anything. It would always be a cue. And either we would run it with film, but some of them we would just play the, the cue. You know, sometimes it would be main titles, so the, the visual yeah. really didn't matter. But that would be something much more that I would be interested in doing, is, is something like that. So you could hear the whole, you know, yeah. the whole thing. You could talk about it a little bit before, you, you, you'd have to say something, I think, to the, to the audience, that, because there's a lot of, you know, repetition in it, and you'd, you'd have to explain kind of what you're, what you're doing. But... That's more what I, I'm interested in. I'm, I'm not interested in really arrangements. Yes. As much as I'm interested in what they were thinking when they composed the music for the film. Yeah, absolutely. Or even the snow battle from The Empire Strikes Back. It's a, such yeah, a yeah. huge, wonderful piece of music.
just one last question. So uh, you're part of the John Williams world since many years, as we were saying, you were performing his music in sessions in LA and uh, you conducted many concerts featuring his music across the US. More recently, he invited you to be the conductor of the first half of the film nights in Tanglewood and Hollywood Bowl. Now you're stepping into another side of the John Williams world as you're working with Steven Spielberg for West Side Story. Going through all these experiences, what did you learn about John Williams and his music? Uh, first performing and then being one of the interpreter. Did your perspective on his music change through the years or remain yeah, pretty much the same? It really changed. Um, as I said, the, the, the most salient change for me was actually studying his score like a conductor, not looking at it, say, how did he orchestrate this, but really uh, when you learn a piece is to conduct it and then you get to perform it more than once. You know, I've, I've done Raiders maybe five or six times. I've done the Star Wars movies several times. Um, you, you really start to learn these details and what sort of just went flying by you when you slow down and study it like you would study anything if, if you were going to conduct it, you start to see the, the, the art in it. And as I said, becomes more and more aware of the the commerce versus art or that intersection, how mm -hmm. critical that is and what that means and how that one doesn't necessitate getting rid of the other. You have to, you have to, and by commerce, I, 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 it's not a very good definition of what it is. It's maybe it's more that you, the music isn't the main thing in a movie. A movie is a combination of a bunch of stuff that in the one sense is collaborative, but in another sense, you have to give a movie what it what it needs. And watching how he worked th that out in detail, because mm. sometimes it's the, like I said, that other example in E.T., it's the littlest detail that makes everything that came before it work, that, that morphs something into something else that then can morph into something else, which, you know, that's at the heart of Western music. Western classical music, I think, is a project of transformation. Um, there's no other music that can modulate. We have a, a tempered scale system. We are not, it's not like, it's just wedding music in one key or a raga in one key or African drum music. Western classical music, I think, is a project of basically telling stories and of transforming. And you can't transform in a movie like you can in a concert piece where you can go through this elaborate transformative, um, these, these sonata form transformations where you you set up another key, you change, then you mess around with the keys and you end up in a, this key and mm. you, you mess around with motives and you retrograde them and you put the melody in the accompaniment and, and all that. The more complicated you get, the harder it is to make it, to make it work. So you have to, you have to come up with other ways to transform what you're doing. Yeah. So that's what I was talking about. The end of Accidental Tourist is a perfect example of that. It's kind of a, I wouldn't say banal theme, but it's a repetitive yeah. theme that has a little bit of a pivot harmony in it. But when you get to the last scene, which is absolutely where the movie is going inexorably to that scene, yeah. the music becomes transformative.
and yeah. it makes the end that end shot of him in the cab smiling so yeah. much stronger than it would have been without that music in the details that this this happens there's a there's a harmonic thing that he does in that cue anyway not to go into huge detail anyone that wants to study i think john williams should take a look at that cue and how it transforms this simple thing where this guy really does he finally transforms he finally understands himself and the music helps you take him there that's the end of the movie and then the end title is this sort of joyous thing that you've never heard any music like it. It's completely different than anything you've heard in the movie. Yes, very bouncy, very, yes. very light. Yeah, like alive instead of dead. transforms because of this woman he lives and he's alive and the music takes you through the end title all the way to the end of the end title and it ends with this the, that beautiful um diodes the you know two note thing and 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 has this nice consonant ending If you listen to this cue, and if you listen to the whole score, The Accidental Tourist, which is a kind of theme and variation piece, yes. even if you haven't seen the film, uh, the music is able to evoke in you feelings and ideas and atmospheres at the core of the characters and the story. And that's one of the greatest power of John Williams' music. Awesome. Okay, David, thank you. Thank you very much sure. for, for, okay. for the talk. Great. Talk soon. Bye-bye.
this podcast is produced by Maurizio Caschetto for thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com.